0: Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for letting us be together this morning. Thank you for uh, the full plate we've already experienced in regards to worshiping you and offering you praise and and thanksgiving on this special holiday weekend. Thank you for the many blessings you've brought into our lives. None of them deserved, but because you reached out through Christ and loved us, uh, we can be right with you even this day. Thank you for what we've experienced Help us to focus our minds now on your word and what you have to teach us. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the strong name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I hope you've had a good Thanksgiving weekend. If you're like me, I've had so much turkey that this is a turning point day I don't need to eat turkey now for 362 more days. (laughs) Hopefully I'll be ready for that uh, next uh, Thanksgiving. It's tradition though, you have Thanksgiving dinner, you have your turkey and uh, stuffing and all those sorts of things. And I'm thinking of another tradition. Maybe you had it growing up, maybe you still have it now, maybe you've never had it, but you've probably heard somebody talk about this. It's usually instigated by mom, At some point in the Thanksgiving dinner, mother will say, now why don't we go around the table and each say something that we're really thankful for this year? Now, that seems very benign. That seems like something that everybody would really love to do, except if, if I can just be honest, you had a really lousy year. I mean, you can't really pull one out of the hat right there and think, well, gee, this is not an easy thing to uh, deal with. Now, when we have our entire family together, I have five grown kids, they're all married, I have 11 grandkids, you're always going to have somebody who will not play, right? You know, and they get very creative with their responses. You know, what do you think? Well, Well, my attorney has suggested that I ought not answer a subject of that nature... <laughs> You know, at this point in uh, the proceedings. It's like, wow. But it's very real. And I I think about that, that it's naive to think that everybody who's hearing this right now is just happy, happy, joy, joy because of how wonderful Thanksgiving was. Uh, Whenever there are a group of people, there are undoubtedly people who are experiencing pain who've been through difficult times, who have gone through, if we can use the analogy we want to develop today, a valley. It's not a mountaintop time in your life. It's a low, low valley. Well, we want to talk about that. Let me me set it up with a story that will sound completely unrelated, but it all comes together. Just just give me a minute. Um, Back in 2006... Uh, some friends uh, encouraged me to start a little something on the side that I could do to kind of give back to help people like people had helped me, and that is I started a, a three-day intensive workshop for speakers, people who we, the line we used is, take your speaking to the next level and it was purposely a small group so there'd be a lot of one-on-one and it was a wonderful time. We were able to do it here with the staff and we had great times working with different groups of people and a, a very typical group would be a church staff where the pastor and the other pastors on staff that were teaching throughout the week and, and lay people, you know, there might be a lawyer or there might be a realtor or there might be a teacher, somebody else who had speaking opportunities and wanted to improve their speaking. So I was uh, still living in Southern California when this story took place and, and was hired by a church staff in Southern California to do this. So we all met together, and we were in a circle, and like you always do, you go around the room and introduce yourself, and of course, they all knew one another, but they were trying to introduce themselves to me. And there was a gentleman in the room who was not on the church staff, but he was a member of the church, and he had teaching opportunities. I had just never met anybody one-on-one in that particular role. And I said, what do you do for a living? And he said, well, I guess you would say, I'm a politician. Uh, I am uh, elected to serve a constituency and so every few years I have to run for election again and so I want to improve my speaking skills when I go out and give speeches asking for people to vote for me and I became fascinated with this guy because I thought you know that I, I have a very interesting world unlike a pastor who gets to give something new every week a, a politician is purposely kind of corralled into a one speech that they give over and over and over again. They call it a stump speech. And, you, and your handlers never want you to vary because you don't want to say something off script that endorses another policy that you didn't even discuss. So you just stick with that one speech over and over and over again. So my question to the politician was, obviously, how do you stay energized giving the same speech over and over and over again. Don't you kind of lose your mojo in this? I mean, just saying the same thing. He said, yeah. He said, now on my staff, though, we have a little uh, game that we play that helps us, you know, keep this thing fresh. I said, well, are you able to share? What is this all about? He said, yeah, it's kind of fun. He said, they know I'm going to give the same speech over and over again. But what we do is, while I'm being introduced by whoever's hosting this meeting, One of my aides will come over and he'll whisper in my ear several words. And whatever those words are, I need to insert them in my stump speech as if they belonged from the beginning. I said, really? He said, well, yeah. I said, give me an example. He said, well, uh, I remember one time uh, I was about to go up there and they whispered in my ear, xylophone and stingray go get him. And he stood up, and he, he was really a pro. And I mean, he says, just flawlessly. I'm just doing all this, and I'm giving my speech and everything. And then w- without ever making it look any different, I just said at one point, now, I'm not a flashy guy. You notice I didn't bring the USC marching band with all its xylophones and trombones and drums. You know, and I'm just a, a middle-class guy. If You see me in town, I'm not driving a Stingray. I'm the, And it was just perfect. And so we all laughed about that. We had fun. And the reason I'm telling you this story is as we came to the end of this three-day seminar, the the rest of the uh, guys and gals in the room said, let's play that game with our senior pastor. Let's give him some words that on Sunday he's going to have to get up and seamlessly weave into his message. And the words they gave him were the words, Valley Forge Valley Forge He did a great job. What he did with the words Valley Forge just live on in public speaking history in my mind. And I want to tell you what he did. And I'll tell you at the end of my message so that you stay with me, okay? Now, Valley Forge To a a guy like me, you're, you're singing my song. I grew up in Philadelphia. I mean, if you were a Philadelphia kid, every winter you got in the big yellow school bus and drove out to Valley Forge. Independence Hall in the spring, Valley Forge in the winter. Valley Forge is that location. It's exactly 22 miles northwest of the city of Philadelphia where the American Continental Army camped out for the winter of 1777 and 1778. 22 miles northwest of Philly was an ideal spot, General Washington decided, because it was far enough away from the British, who already had Philadelphia, to uh, not be surprised in their attack, but it was close enough uh, to keep an eye on them. And so Valley Forge is most known for its bitter weather the most severe winter that had been recorded historically. It was was a very, very difficult time. On December 19th, 1777, Washington marched into Valley Forge with 12,000 soldiers. Six months later, when the winter was over, 2,000 of those 12,000 had already perished and another 4,000 had been relieved of their duties because they were declared unfit to serve. Half the troops were destroyed, essentially, because of that valley that they experienced. But there was a bright spot to all of this. A gentleman appeared in Valley Forge not too long after they encamped with a letter, and he handed it to General Washington, and the letter was from no less than Benjamin Franklin. While in Europe, Benjamin Franklin had met this gentleman and said, you need to go back and give this letter to Washington. I will endorse you. And the letter essentially said, this man will whip this ragtag group of soldiers into a real fighting crew. Guy has an incredible long name. Baron Frederick Wilhelm von Stuben from Prussia. And... Franklin said, trust me, you let this guy have your troops, he will whip them into shape, and that's exactly what happened. Now, you're sitting there thinking, my goodness, this is church, this is not American history, what's going on here? To me, the Valley Forge experience is a very graphic illustration of a valley experience, okay? For example, consider a few statements, here's one. Valleys are the low points in life. Okay? If we contrast a low valley with a high mountaintop, we tend to use that more in our expressions. Oh, I'm I'm feeling great. That was a mountaintop experience. Okay? Well, the opposite would be a valley experience. It's a low point in life. Also, valleys are the testing times in life. If you read about Valley Forge, it's amazing. I mean, there were so little of the regular essentials, not only food, but clothing. It's this killer, freezing winter. And most soldiers don't even have a complete set of clothes that they can wear. As a matter of fact, they'd put like 12 in a hut and when the one had to go out for guard duty, he'd gather all the clothes from all the other soldiers so he could possibly keep himself warm. I mean, it's a very difficult testing time in life. But we also see from the story that valleys are also training times in life. I'm sure I'm looking in the faces of some of you who have been through valley experiences and you say, because of those experiences, I've learned things. Now, it's not unique to American history. Matter of fact, the Bible addresses the whole idea of the valleys throughout, but there are two really key passages where the Bible talks about valleys. Isaiah chapter 40 and a more familiar one, the 23rd Psalm. And so with those two scriptures as our guide this morning, I want to walk through some ideas in answer to a question. How do you fill in the valleys in life? How do you make the lows of life less low? How do you equalize life? Be willing to say, I'd be willing to have the mountain high be a little lower if the lows were a little higher. I'd like a little more equalization in life. How can I have what I'm calling victory in the valley? And I'd like to offer you three ideas from these scripture passages how that works. So here's the first one. It comes from the Isaiah passage. For victory in the valley, don't hold temporal things too tightly. For victory in the valley, don't hold temporal things too tightly. Now, listen as I read to you uh, the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 40, because this is where we see that word valley. One more intro into this passage, and then I'll read it to you. The book of Isaiah is a fascinating Old Testament book of the Bible. It's kind of the Bible in miniature, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, just like 66 books in the Bible. And with the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it's very Old Testament in its theme. It's a lot of judgment in regards to you have disobeyed and you will be judged and and you will be disciplined and it will be difficult times for you. But when you get to chapter 40... If you're a serious Bible student, the lingo that you see here is that Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 is a hinge, is a pivot. We now completely change our tone and rather than judgmental, it's of a future that's glorious, that's hope-filled. Matter of fact, the very first word of Isaiah chapter 40 is the word comfort. And so when Isaiah gets to this, he says to them, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. But listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Now listen to this. Make the highway straight through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys. And level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. And the voice says, shout. What should I shout, I asked. Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. Now, this is amazing stuff. It's been written about for years. If you grew up possibly with old King James, it's the lingo that Handel used when he, when he wrote the Messiah. If you ever sing the hallelujah chorus, and every valley shall be exalted and every mountain made low. That it's this equalization that we're looking for. How do we get through those difficult valleys in life? And after that is said, the first thing that's mentioned is realize that all of us are like flowers, are like grass. We have our moments, but we're going to fade. We're going to pass away. It's not about temporal things. I can think of a several different ways to state this in kind of more of a subpoint. For example, life is not all about money or possessions. Life is not all about money or possession. Your neighbor might think that. Your boss might think that. Your parents might think that. Money is not all about, uh, money's not all about life. Life is not all about money or possessions, okay? Those are temporal things. And to me, that's very helpful if you chose to pass on what I am thankful for this Thanksgiving because in this last year, it was the year you lost your job or you lost your house, or you've been forced to dig into your savings, or your car got totaled, or your portfolio is a lot less than it was last Thanksgiving, or having to admit to a family member, I I said I would help you out financially to go to school or whatever. I'm just not going to be able to do it like I thought I was. You're going to have to get some additional work and help me. Those are difficult times. Those are real issues. But if that's your focus, that valley will get even lower. What we need to realize is that this is temporal and and life is not about money or possessions. But we live in a culture that feels that way. There's the great old story of the guy who truly believed this and he got old and he got sick and his time to pass away was coming close and he said to his wife, I love all my stuff so I got this figured out. I'm going to take all the possessions that I value and I'm going to take them up to the attic. And when I die, my soul will go up to heaven and I will simply grab them on the way up and take them with me. And sure enough, shortly after, he passed away and his wife in her grief made her way up to the attic and sure enough, all the possessions were still there. And as only a wife could say, She clucked her tongue. I knew I should have put that stuff in the basement. Now, there's no theology to that. That's simply what we call a bad joke, all right? But you almost think people would think that way, the way they live, the way they hoard, the way they crave their stuff. They want to have it all. And it's like, that's not what it's made up of. Give me one more bad line. It's one of my favorite bumper stickers. You'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It's not the way it's wired. You don't take all that stuff with you. You can't take it with you. You can send it on ahead. That's why the beauty of God's children is that they're allowed to participate with their financial gifts to their church and to charities that help other people to use your possessions and your money to do what other people cannot have done uh, by themselves. There's beauty in that. But it's not all about money and possessions. It's also, it's not all about earthly accomplishments. It's not all about what you achieve because those are like these flowers. They bloom and it's beautiful and then all of a sudden it just disappears or just plain old beauty. I haven't been with you guys in a while and so I need to talk to you from this verse and tell you very honestly, you don't look as good as you did the last time I was here. I can say that because none of us do. We're not getting prettier as we age. We're getting uglier. It's just what life is all about. I had a professor in seminary, he used to say it well. Four great words. Bodies deteriorate, persons develop. Bodies deteriorate, persons develop. Don't be offended that I say you're uglier than the last time I saw you. It's just the truth. But there's beauty in the person that's developing within this aging, decaying old body. So if we want victory in the valley, the first thing we need to understand is that we ought not hold on to temporal things too tightly. Now, Isaiah goes on and he suggests a second way to have victory in the valley, and it's in the next few verses of Isaiah chapter 40. For victory in the valley, number two, dig deeper into God's word. For victory in the valley, dig deeper into God's word. In verse six, he says, the voice says, shout. And I ask, what should I shout? Shout, the people are like grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. So it is with the people. Here it is. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever that in contrast to the temporal nature of a beautiful flower or a lush green lawn, that will all fade. But God's word is eternal. It will last forever. Now, interestingly enough, one of the New Testament writers, one of the 12 disciples, Peter, quotes this Isaiah passage in his first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, He says at the end, in verse 24, the scriptures say people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. But then he adds some commentary by saying, so get rid of all your evil behavior. Be done with deceit and hypocrisy and jealousy and unkind speech. And instead, like a newborn baby... Crave pure spiritual work uh, milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. That instead of making your goal in life temporal things, make your goal in life to dig deeper into your Bible. Now, for some of us, this is just same story, next verse, but it's a worthwhile review. Many of us have been around things of the church. Many of us have had a relationship with Christ for years and years and years. And so my intent over the next few minutes is just to continue to admonish you, fall in love with your Bible all over again. Crave it. It's like what milk would be to a newborn baby. That's all they know. They live for mother's milk. Can you imagine if all you knew is what you lived for each day with Scripture? Now, I remember I was a teenager when I dedicated my life to the Lord, and I was sent to a Christian summer camp for a week. And every day started the same. 7 a.m., you were told to get up. You got a half an hour to get your life together. And then we all meet together at 7.30 in the big room. And some... 40-year-old who thought he was a teenager got up there with his guitar and led in some silly song that took three minutes. And at 7.33, he said, breakfast is at eight. You now have 27 minutes to read your Bible. And we're like, yeah, and like, what are our other options? What, What else can we do? Well, nothing. You're gonna sit here and you're gonna read your Bible. And I remember we would look at each other like, what did we do wrong? Why, why are we being disciplined in this way? This is cruel and this is hideous. You know, what are we? And, and 27 minutes sounded like the longest prison sentence ever. And we knew that the next day it would start the same way. And it was like, oh my goodness. And boy, for a lot of us, we can identify with that. We were told, you just read it. You just read it. You know, you go to your room and you read it. As opposed to hopefully where many of us are today, you know what this is? This is God's love letter to me. That love letter you got from your sweetheart, you didn't just wad it up in a ball after you got it and threw it in the trash. No, for a lot, you've saved it and you tied a ribbon around it, and oh my goodness, it's it's holy love letter. And that's what our Bible is all about. See, God's word is my ultimate desire. It's how I grow. And and so I get the opportunity to read this every day. Now, I remember some of the misadventures that I've had since I was a teenager. Uh, I remember when uh, they produced a Bible that they called the one-year Bible. You could read the entire Bible in a year. January 1st, you started with Genesis 1. And I remember, I thought, this is great. I'm going to do it. And I did all the way through to Valentine's Day. And there's this, this rough book in the Old Testament, Leviticus. Can anybody help me get through Leviticus? Lord, I need a miracle here. And that's stayed with some of us. It's like, yeah, I tried to read the Bible, but boy, you know, you'll never get the numbers, trust me. Well, I'm giving us six weeks advance notice. January one I'll be here before you know it. How about we all bond together in a I'm going to get past Leviticus this year group, all right? Now, there's no magic of reading it chronologically. You can read it however, but you need to read it every day. There's a great song. Actually, it was in the lyrics of one of the songs we sang this morning. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is not only a love letter, it's our GPS. It directs us in the way that we are to go. And that's a beautiful thing because we need that direction. Now, my problem as a 21st century Christian is when I hear that his his word is a light to me, I see a halogen bright beam, you know, sports car headlight that I can shine it and see Louisiana in my focus, all right? That's what I want from God. God, let me read a verse today that includes my five-year plan, my 10-year plan, my ultimate goal. And God's like, get a clue, man. That's not the way it works. This is Old Testament stuff where a light is a candle. You ever had a candle in a dark room? How far ahead can you see? One step, one step. We're too impatient for that. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll get you through till noon. Noon? I was looking for like the next decade. You know, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go to school? How many job offers will I have to turn down before I take the seven-figure one? Trust me, I'll get you home for lunch. What? That seems ludicrous. But that's exactly what God is saying. He's saying, I will lead you one step at a time so for victory in the valley hold temporal things less tightly secondly dig deeper into god's word We've got time for one more it might be a favorite it's in the 23rd psalm to get for victory in the valley finally draw closer to the shepherd draw closer to the shepherd The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect me and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. God is our shepherd. And what that means is because of him, I have all that I need. Now, you're hearing a lot about me today in my life, my Valley Forge stories and my childhood. I grew up in church and we had Sunday school lessons about the Lord is our shepherd and therefore we are sheep. And the way we were always symbolized as sheep was so warm and loving. After all, sheep are like giant puffs of white cotton with little pipe cleaner legs and and pink little noses and the cutest little... uh, uh, uh. And then you go... Hang out with a real live sheep and realize, I don't know how else to say this. When God refers to his children as sheep, this is not his strongest compliment that he has ever given (laughs) to the men and women in the family of God. Sheep could be more graphically described as disgusting. I mean, I remember the last few years I've been going to Israel every year, and it's kind of the same thing. These shepherds are still there because sh- sheep can't operate on their own. I mean, again, it's not very, you know, warm-hearted, but, but sheep are mostly characterized by ignorance. Sheep are stupid, stupid sheep. And they stink. And they don't know where they're going. And they're far from lily-white, puffy cotton balls. And the shepherd's still out there these days with his rod and his staff, except I get such a kick because I always see it in my mind's eye. Today's shepherds, or at least the ones we see, guide their sheep as they drive around their four-wheeler. And they got little places for the rod and the staff back there, kind of like where we put fishing rods. (laughs) And they're driving around and they're moving because they need those sheep to know, I'm the shepherd, I'm in charge, you need to follow me. And because of that, we can get through the valleys. Because he is our shepherd, the valleys don't scare me. Now that's interesting. Please take note. It doesn't say you'll never have another valley if you just listen to what the blonde boy is saying here. No, it says our valleys won't scare us like they once did. Because he is our shepherd. So today I say to you, if you are going through a valley, first of all, I completely understand. Almost everyone, if not everyone, that's listening to this has been in a similar situation that you are. And so if we want to move from the lowness of the valley to a more even, stable life as described in Isaiah chapter forty where the lows are higher and the highs are lower and the, the 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 rough road has been made smooth and the windy road has been made straight there's three things we need to understand we need to understand we need to hold temporal things less tightly we need to dig deeper into God's word and we need to draw closer to the shepherd and so if you do that you'll be able to handle valleys Or, as I wrap up my time, as promised, we can do what my friend the pastor did that Sunday when he was given the assignment of putting Valley Forge into his talks. He got to the end of his presentation, and he said, so, if I were to sum this all up, I would say it very simply. When in the valley, forge ahead. (laughs) Is that great or what? Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being our shepherd, for being the author of our love letter, for being the eternal God that holds everything in his hands from the beginning of creation on into eternity. Lord, in these ways, we are seeing how to be victorious in these valleys that we may be experiencing. So I pray today, Lord, for that, for that man, for that woman, for that child who is experiencing a very difficult time. I pray that you would give them victory as they put these things into practice. Lord, it's also possible people are hearing this today who, who can't understand you as a shepherd because they've never been in any kind of personal relationship with you. I pray that today would be the day they would understand that when the Lord Jesus came and died on the cross... He died to pay for all that we ever did wrong, pay for all our sins, so that through our receiving that payment, we could have eternal life and a wonderful lifelong relationship with him. May this be the day of salvation for someone who hears these words right now. For all of us, Lord, we want victory in the valley, so give us the strength and the passion to forge ahead.